Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? It's good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are taking a bit of a break from our series through Hebrews. Praise God for Tyler's wonderful message from 1 Thessalonians last week. Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 and then we're going to pick back up into Hebrews uh, next Sunday. But as you're finding Hebrews, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, let me just say I'm so glad to be back in America. I was visiting my parents in California last week (laughs) and uh, it was wonderful to see them, but there's no place like America. And uh, I'm just thankful that the children are here. And uh, I I was thinking about this text this morning. Uh, We have these hopes as, as leaders of the church that that young people that grow up in this church would, would know the gospel, that they would know the saving message of the Bible. And so this text this morning, I, I know I can be a bit hyperbolic at times, but I, I think that these 10 verses that we're going to look at briefly this morning, and I, I want you boys and girls to do your best to pay attention, I think these 10 verses are, at least in one unit, in, in just a small paragraph, the best and most comprehensive explanation of how God makes people Christians in all of the Bible. And so I'm going to read the text here in just a moment, work our way through it, and then, and then I'll pray, and then, and then we'll sing a song of response. But I want to give you a kind of outline of this text. I think, I think it breaks down nicely. First, this, this text, I think, tells us what the problem is, and then it tells us what the answer is, And then it tells us what the purpose of all of this is. I I think that's a good way to organize this text. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. And then we're just going to work our way through this passage and revel in the good news of the gospel that we've heard read to us in scripture and prayed and, and sung and now preached from the scripture. So pray with me that the Lord would help us revel in the good news of the gospel. Lord, thank you for... Your goodness to us, thank you for this day, this day, February 18th, 2024, that you've created for us, that we should rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you for the church, thank you for the old and the young that are gathered in this room. Thank you for the families of Cross Point, thank you for every member, every visitor. And we thank you especially for this text this morning. I pray that as I speak on this text that we have looked at many times in the history of our church, that you would give illumination, that you'd give discernment, that you'd give expectant hearts, and that you would give to our friends that are with us today that maybe walked in not knowing your grace, not knowing you as Lord and Savior. Would you you give them hearts to believe and ears to hear, as has already been prayed? And Lord, would you do all this for the good of your people, for the completion of your work amongst all those that you call to yourself, and for the glory of your name. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, a wonderful history of how this comes about. You can read about it in Acts chapter, I think, 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there, maybe a little bit into 19. 
where he goes to this city named Ephesus. He preaches the gospel, stays there for a little while. Basically, riots happen. <laughs> People that were making idols, you know, become Christians and start burning their idols. Everybody gets mad at Paul. He gets beat. He runs away. And then he writes this letter back to this church in, in Ephesus called the Ephesians. It's pastored by this young man named Timothy, who is the recipient of his letters, First and Second Timothy. And here in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 10, we have this explanation by Paul of the good news of the gospel. So let me read first three verses about the, the problem that Paul wants us all to understand. He says, and you, verse 1, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, I want to pause there in these first three verses and just look at the problem that I think Paul presents us with as we read this text. And I want to make sure that we do understand this text. So let's just look at a few key phrases and words here. First there, in the first verse, Paul says that we're we're dead. He's speaking to all of us because by the end of these three verses, he basically says this is all of mankind. This describes all of us. And he says to these people who are Christians, but before they became Christians, they were, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. What does Paul mean by this? He's not saying that they were physically dead. Obviously, these people are alive. But he's, he's referring to a spiritual reality of humanity before salvation. And he's saying his way of describing their inability to do anything about their condition. He says, you're dead. You are completely incapacitated. In other words, Paul is making a statement that no matter where you are in the spectrum of culture, of society, of intelligence, wherever, that, you, that mankind, all of us are born by nature, unable, we're born in sin because we inherited that from our parents, Adam and Eve, all the way back in the garden from Genesis chapter 3. And he says there's this problem in humanity. We, we are spiritually dead. We're not alive to the things of God in our nat natural state because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And not only is it just our sin, but he says there's really a, a kind of a threefold problem for humanity. It's not only our sins, our flesh. Look at verse 3. He says we lived prior to coming to faith in Jesus by the passions of our flesh. But he also says that we were following the course of this world. And so there's like this stream that's carrying us out to a riptide that's carrying us away from God. And then there's somebody that's in a sense orchestrating that and he calls it the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this is a clear reference to our enemy, Satan. And so you see this threefold problem that all of humanity has. We have this sin inside of us because of our rebellion against God, because we've inherited that from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then all of us participate in this world. We make up this fallen world. And then it's, it's led by our enemy, the prince of the power of the air. And so we have this threefold problem that we, are all, that we are all dealing with. And the result is that we are, he says here at the end of verse three, we are by nature 
by nature, children of wrath. That's all of us. Now, that's a hard phrase. And that, that cuts against our natural sensibilities as people. We tend to be, think of ourselves as relatively good. But the Bible, before it can tell us the good news of the gospel, is establishing the utter neediness, the desperate state of all of mankind. Now, just a couple observations before we, we move on to the good news of the gospel and the answer in the next few verses. Admittedly, this may be a jolt to some of us, especially if you're not very familiar with the Bible or the way the Bible talks about salvation or mankind and our state before salvation. This, is, this, this account of the state of mankind in his nature and in our nature before salvation is utterly contrary to what our culture says. But if you think about it, I want you to consider that it actually makes sense of the world around us. The world is fallen. The world is a wicked place. And it is contrary to God. Now, one other observation before we continue, and I think this is a very legitimate one, is that an understandable question may arise in our hearts when we read a, a summary of the state of mankind before salvation like this. And the question that arises in our heart is, well, why would God allow this? Why would he even create a creation and people that would fall like this? Why would God do this? Now, I want to offer and I want to say that that is a very legitimate question that Christians have rightly been grappling with for, through the centuries. And I think the Bible, although it may not answer it exactly like we want it to, or to our sort of man-centered philosophical nature, to that satisfaction, it does answer that question. And I think we'll get to the answer of that question, at least in a biblical way here, in a, in a bit. But let's just pause there and say that, that as we attempt to answer the purposes of God in the fallenness of the world and mankind and his answer to it, let's just, I just want to put this, I want to put this posture in your heart if you're wrestling with that question understandably. Ask that question with a heavy dose of humility. We are creatures. He is the creator. We're the clay. He's the potter. And I think one of the great challenges, in fact, one of the evidences of our fallenness is the arrogance and the self-centeredness and really the self-worship with which mankind even approaches questions like that as if the creator of the universe owes us in some way to make us the center of the universe. The Bible doesn't, doesn't speak like that. It just presents it like it is. God has created everything, and he has allowed the fall, and as we'll see, he has done this for his good and glorious purposes, which end up better than we could ever imagine. So here's the problem. Sin is the problem. We are fallen and we are completely unable to do anything about it on our own. Which leads us to the answer, the next six verses. Now, 
These are some of the sweetest verses in all of the Bible. If you are a highlighter or you're an underliner and, and you have not underlined or highlighted verses 4, 5, and 6, then I doubt your credentials as a legitimate Bible underliner liner, or highlighter. Okay, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just going to doubt your commitment to that way of handling your Bible. And I'm not saying you need to be that. But if you fancy yourself one and you don't have these verses, then come on, where, what, what are you doing? Here's the answer to the problem. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, again, let's pause and let's make sure we understand the text. Let's just follow the logic slowly and carefully of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, but God, okay, is an answer. He's, he's cueing us here in verse 4 that there's going to be an answer to the problem. Here's the problem. Mankind by nature, look, we can quibble with it, but this is what the Bible says. By nature, we've sinned against God, and this has left us in this place of inability where we can't do anything about it. In fact, by nature, we're children of wrath. What are we going to do? We're stuck here. But God, verse 4, but God. And what does God do here? Being rich in his mercy. And notice what his motivation. What is God's motivation for the answer that we're about to get from the Apostle Paul as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit? But God, being rich in mercy, he says God is about to do something. And why is God about to do something? Because he sees something in us or because there's something in man that he's responding to? No, look at the end of verse four. But God... Being rich in mercy, what's his motivation? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Irrespective of anything in us, but simply because of his love with no conditions. His love with which he loved us, that's what moved God. Not because he needed man, not because there was anything good in us, but simply because of his love, it says. And what does he do? What does that love that God had for his people compel him, move him to do? Verse 5 tells us that even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, even when we couldn't do anything to respond to his love, even when there was nothing good in us, nothing lovely in us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what does God do? Wait for us to come to him and clean ourselves up? No, it says that he made us alive together with Christ. Now think about what, what just think about the, the enormous, glorious truth that Paul is saying here. He's saying that in every salvation, every person that's ever become a Christian, a miracle has taken place. It's the miracle of the resurrection. It's a miracle, nothing short of when Jesus came back from the dead himself. In fact, he is joining every person 
that has ever trusted in Jesus and become a Christian, he's joining that experience and he's saying what's happened to that person has been joined to what happened to Christ when the Son of God who died on the cross and went into the grave for three days and then was resurrected by the power of God, he's saying the same thing that happened to Jesus is the same thing that happened to you in your salvation. In fact, that's how it came about. He made us alive together with Christ. And this is glorious. I don't want to get too complicated here because I think this is so wonderful. It even passes. It's, it's one of those things that's inscrutable in a way, but we can see it and we can revel in it and we can, we can wonder at it. You think about how he's saying that we were, I mean, look, we were all, of, all of us were born in the 1900s or 2000s, and yet we're Christians and we were, at some point in time, we became believers in Jesus and we passed from spiritual death to life. And he's saying that you were made alive together with Christ. And so, in a sense, if you think of the church of the living God from every tribe and tongue and nation across the ages as the body of Christ, in some spiritual, mystical, unexplainable way, all of us, when Jesus rose from the dead... In his victory over sin, death, and the grave, the Son of God, in his resurrection, all of us were in a sense, mysteriously, in him. We, we, we were made alive together with Christ. And because Jesus is alive, God, through Jesus' resurrection, makes all of those that have ever come to him alive through Christ. In other words, what God does when he saves a person is they're dead in their sins. They cannot respond to God, but he comes to them not because of anything good in you or me, but simply because he loved you and he takes that dead heart and he makes it beat, he makes it alive, he opens your ears to the good news of the gospel. What you could not see before, you can now see. What you couldn't believe before, you can now believe. And you trust, he becomes a real, and you see your need of him, and you trusted him, and he makes you alive based on Christ being alive and you are now his. You're made alive. To, this is grace. And this is, then he, he, he summarizes it all by saying, this is by grace that you have been saved. Is this not the most grace? What does the human do here? What does the dead person do? The dead person receives the grace of God alone. And they're made alive. And then verse 6 says, he, he raised us. Not only does he make us alive, but he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't have time to get into this, but this is just a guarantee that all those that are his will make it all the way to heaven. Because he speaks about you're already seated there. In other words, your future is already established in a spiritual sense, even though you've got some more life to live here after your salvation. It's so certain, your future, that you've already been seated with God in Christ in the heavenly places. That's the answer. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, some observations before we move on. Doesn't this run contrary to the help yourself gospel, the false gospel that our world preaches? We all sort of instinctively believe this. 
because we're humans and and we, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, have been trying to cover ourselves from the beginning. You know, just how Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves in the garden, tried to cover their fallenness, they tried to cover their shame, and it just was insufficient. That's a kind of metaphor. It's, it's a consequence of our fallenness. We've been trying to cover ourselves from the beginning, and it's just the way we're born. We want to think that we have somehow made ourselves right and we deserve credit for our right standing with God. But this gospel removes any ability for a human to say, thank you for the head start, look how I finished it. Because that does not happen in salvation. That's impossible with the way Paul describes salvation here. You were dead and you were made alive. That's how a person becomes a Christian. Their heart wasn't beating for God, and all of a sudden it does. Their ears were closed to the good news of the gospel, and all of a sudden it's open. Their eyes were blind to the beauty of Christ, but all of a sudden we can see. And that's the good news of the gospel. Now sometimes, I think even after trusting in Jesus, we're prone to resist this. We kind of fall back and we think about, we sort of want to adjust ourselves, justify ourselves by our own works or righteousness. But we need to remember that the good news of the gospel, the sweetness of the gospel, is that God does it. This is really the good news. Now, now I want, we're kind of at a fork in the road here. Maybe some of you are thinking, man, my flesh, this sort of, this sort of runs contrary to what I've heard before, or I instinctively think, and so it kind of opposes you, and this feels like, man, that doesn't seem like, man, I, but really, that God would do it, that God would do it, I'm completely dependent on God for salvation, and the sweet and good and God-glorifying answer of the Bible is yes, and friends, you actually want it that way, because if it weren't that way, none of us would actually choose God. So the answer is, is that God does it. Doing, understanding this helps us acknowledge him in our worship. Which leads us to then, why would God do this? What's the purpose? What's the purpose of all this? The last, the last few verses. I've got a young one agreeing with everything I say, praise God. <laughs> the purpose. So that, so that, come on. You know where I'm about to go. It's a conjunction, right? And when you see a conjunction, junction, you've got to ask what's its function, conjunction, junction. Everything that comes after this is because of everything that went before it. So that, so that in the coming ages he might, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, there's a lot to this, but let me summarize it, hopefully concisely here. The purpose, so that, why has God done it why has God not made mankind 
a participant, like meet me halfway in salvation? Why has God chosen to let man fall and be dead in his sin so that those whom he saves are completely dependent on him and him alone and his love and nothing in them to be the grounds for him making them alive? Why would God do it like that? He tells us so that... In the coming ages, in other words, now and forevermore into eternity, he might show, put on display the immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, his glory in salvation and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So back to the first question I asked. Why would God allow a fall that then he would save a great multitude from every tribe and tongue by his grace alone? Why would he orchestrate a a creation like this for, verse 7 tells us, for the utter, immeasurable, glorious display of his grace. Which is actually the best thing he can do for his creation. And then by way of summary, Paul says in verse 8, because he's wondering, because he's been speaking, he knows that in other letters he's been speaking a lot about the role of faith. Faith, the necessity of faith. In fact, he writes a whole letter to the Galatians, and much of his letter to the Romans is based on this necessity, this idea that we are saved by our faith, our trust in Jesus, not just grace, but how, how, does, how does this grace actually come to a person by faith, we're saved by faith in Jesus and his finished work, not by our works, and so in verse 8, he circles back to this idea For by grace you have been saved. But how does this grace come to us? Through faith. And this is not your own doing because lest we think, okay, God has done the work of Jesus on the cross. And what's Jesus done on the cross? This is really important. On the cross, Jesus has, remember how verse 3 says we're children of wrath? Well, Jesus, in his perfect obedience to God, his perfect obedience to the law of God, then offers his, his perfection and his obedience as a substitute for us, for the punishment that we deserve. So the wrath that should have been ours, according to verse 3, Jesus on the cross bears, and because of his perfection as a human, and because of his infinite holiness as God the Son, he has more than enough holiness to consume all of the punishment and all of the wrath for all of our sin. So he extinguishes, he removes the the wrath of God on the cross, and he then turns that wrath into favor. So he He takes our sin, he bears the punishment for us, and he gives us, he imputes his righteousness to us. And how does he do that? By faith. But here's the point that Paul is saying here in verse 8, is how does that faith, where does that faith come from? Is Is it something that the dead sinner then must bring to the table. Paul is saying, no, that even the grace that you receive by faith and you must trust in Jesus, even that faith, that trust in Jesus is something that God must give you. It's a gift that comes with the package of the new heart that he makes alive in the moment of your salvation. It's not something that a dead sinner brings. It's part of the gift package of a new heart that a dead sinner gets. And that new heart 
freshly made alive. Now where it could not have faith, where it was unable, where it was dead, is now alive. And this grace that hits this dead heart makes it alive. Faith then exists in this heart. It's a gift of God. And by that faith, we see Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We stop trusting in ourselves. We put our hope in Jesus. And all this Jesus becomes ours. And all that's ours, Jesus takes on the cross and has died for and we are his friends that's grace and then verse 10 the all-important verse 10 why would God do this the purpose of God doing it this way is to display his glory the immeasurable riches of his grace and then for that glory to actually land in our lives through us living for him he says in verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just think about it. Just revel in verse 10 that you, dear Christian, that you, dear person who came in unbelieving, if you will trust in Jesus, that this can be true of you, that you are God's, your life, your life, every Every little detail of it, every little strength that you have, every weakness that you have, every gift, every limitation, every shortcoming, every, every physical thing about you that is part of God's workmanship in your life, where you were born, the family that you have, the parents that you have, even in their strengths and weaknesses, the church that you're part of, even in its imperfection, the group of friends that you have, the, the desires that you have in your heart, the things that you want to do with your life, the, 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 the academic strengths or weaknesses that you have, even the athletic strengths or weaknesses, the, the musical abilities that you have or don't have, or, or whatever it is, that it is part of God. God's workmanship in your life and he created you the way that he did and he put you in this situation for a display of his glory as you live, as you take this life and you seek to glorify him with everything that's in you and live a God-centered, God-glorifying life in the way that you live now that you're alive. It says that God did that in you and not only that he prepared these works he prepared this life beforehand that you should walk in them think about the specificity and the love i mean the loving kindness of god doesn't just end with his choice of you in salvation but it runs all the way through your life and you're his workmanship he 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 loved you. He crafted you in his heavenly workshop for his glory, not merely that you would be a recipient of the good news of the gospel, but that then as a response to it, not so that you will be justified or saved, but because you are justified and saved, that then your life would honor him with good works and glory to God. That's the mission statement of every Christian in this room. 
He created, dear, dear, dear boys and girls, little ones here, he, he created you for a reason. And it wasn't, it wasn't for you to be, bring glory to yourself or for you to accumulate a name for yourself. It was that you would do good works for the Lord in the rest of your life after he saved you so that you would bring glory to his name. And that, that's true for every person in this room regardless of their age. And what are these good works? Now, here's where we need to be careful, and I don't have time to do this exhaustively, but let me just say, we need to be extremely gracious and, I think, large in our assessment of what this might look like in a person's life. This is the whole range of the Christian experience through the centuries. It's as simple and fundamental as becoming more like Jesus, fighting sin, fighting the flesh, fighting the world and the devil. It may be as involved as you being a witness for Christ in your little corner of the world, or it may be something more public. It might be some leadership role in ministry or the church or in some secular setting where you are being an example and a witness for Christ amongst a fallen world. But whatever it is, God has called every Christian. He's made you alive for a purpose, not merely so that you would just receive this grace and hold on until heaven, but that you would work out your salvation with fear and trembling and live for God to the utmost, that you would give your life away, spend it for the glory of God, and however the Lord calls you for his glory and your joy. Boys and girls, grandmas and grandpas, that's why all of us exist. We all have the same problem. There's only one answer. And the answer is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus made you alive. That God made you alive through Christ for the purpose of displaying his wonderful glory in your life through your life for him. As I conclude, how does this passage land on your soul? Does it, does it humble you and make you more grateful for the Lord's grace and kindness? Praise God. May it be. Does it challenge your understanding of how a person can be made right with God? Well, that's good. If that's the case, be humbled and rest and trust and flee and run to the grace of the gospel and receive it, and then get to work living for Jesus? Does it spur you on to see the greater purpose for God's grace for you? Does it shake you out of your spiritual lethargy as just a recipient of grace and know that you need to actually be somebody that puts it on display in your life? That's God's purpose for you? Well, then wonderful. Well, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling with brothers and sisters that need to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, as we respond to this text with worship, with humility, with repentance, with fear and trembling, I pray that we would all see the glory of the gospel, the good news of the gospel in this passage, that we would never move off of the utter glory of your grace that people that have been Christians for decades would, would never 
blur in their mind this north star of the grace of the unmerited kindness that you have towards us in Christ, that you made us alive. And Lord, for the rest of us, may, may we be reminded in this text that you saved us for a reason, to work out our salvation, to put on display, to be your workman, to do good works, not so that we would be saved, but because we are. And for my friends that are here today that have never heard the gospel in this way from the Bible, I pray that you would take this good news, that you would use it to open, that you would cause this news, which Paul says in Romans 1, is the power of God for salvation, that you would use this to open their eyes to their need for Jesus, and they would turn from themselves and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you'd do that. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.